millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Secret Library Podcast. I'm Caroline Donahue. As a lifelong book lover, I've been hanging out with books as long as I can remember. Here on the show, we're going inside the world of books and learning what's involved in going from brilliant idea to finished manuscript and what it takes to get it out in the world. You'll hear from authors, publishers, editors, and all kinds of professionals whose work brings you what you read every day. The Secret Library Podcast is sponsored by Muse Monthly, a subscription box for literature and tea lovers. Get a brand new novel custom paired with a full box or tin of tea on your doorstep every month. Visit musemonthly.com and use the code SECRET00, all one word in all caps, for 10% off your subscription. Welcome back to the Secret Library Podcast. I am really thrilled today to have Janelle Hardy on. She is an artist with a passion for helping people feel alive and connected to their bodies and creative spirits. At JanelleHardy.com, she teaches an eight-week online course uh, circle called Personal Myth Making, which weaves creative writing prompts, storytelling, fairy tales, and embodiment work together in small online groups, rewriting our lives into beauty, wholeness, and joy. With a sweet soft spot for people feeling stuck and frustrated, she also offers 10-day intensives on difficult emotions like anger, grief, and shame. She's taught at colleges, universities, as well as in her living room and online. She studied anthropology undergrad and dance, and she got her master's degree in dance. She has studied structural integration, which is correcting posture through movement lessons and deep tissue massage, and it's amazing. We just talked about that a minute ago, as well as carpentry and maintains a daily creative practice. She connects and inspires every week with her Sunday morning pleasures e-letter. So welcome, Janelle. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. So uh, one reason I was really excited to have you on, plus the word myth, like you have me at the word myth. I love it. Um, I think it's my background in expressive arts and all that Joseph Campbell I dove into, but I think Something that we are starting to dive into on this show a little bit more is not just how the books get into your hands, but how the books are created in the first place and where the stories come from. So I think with your work, I'm curious about how you see people starting to connect to their personal stories. How do I see people starting to connect with their personal stories? Well, I think think people have personal stories, um, but if they haven't connected them to the bigger cultural stories through myth or fairy tale, um, the the personal stories can kind of get stuck in, oh, oh, poor me, um, or, oh, amazing me, amazing family, and um, become a little contracted and limited in this little loop of... uh, internal storytelling that uh, that starts making our ourselves small i'm not sure if i'm answering your question entirely well it seems like there are 
that people can get trapped by the story they tell themselves about who they are. Yeah, exactly. Very, very trapped. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about this as well, because one thing that, um, in recently talking to Sarah Selecki about where writing and where story comes from is that she was talking about that there's a pendulum and on one end, people are really freaked out and they look at a blank page and they're like, oh my God, there's nothing there. Like they can't hear any voice inside of themselves. They've been completely shut down. And then on the other end of the spectrum, they have like torrents of stuff coming out, but they don't, they don't know how to connect with somebody else around that. It's just like, oh, I have to say all of this, but they're not aware of how it might reach someone else. Mm-hmm. Too much of a, of an internal sensor and not enough of an, of that yeah. critic sensor. Exactly. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious on how you start to work with people around the personal myth-making process. Like, how does your process work? Where do you start? I would start by getting... Actually, I would start with embodiment prompts. I'd start by getting people connecting into their body first. Um, and the reason for that is because in our culture, we're very much oriented around the intellectual thinking processes and the rationalizing and the analyzing, um, which is absolutely a necessary skill, but it's really quite imbalanced in our culture. We tend to rely on that too much and shut down what the, the body, the physical sensations have to tell us as well. So uh, I do a simple nine-minute um, touching your hand exercise that gets people into a receiving mode. It calms and settles their nervous system. Um, it draws their attention into the sense of touch. And because of that, it draws their attention into um, a state of reception. The nervous system isn't so charged up on alert, trying to pay attention to the outside world and has just been guided into tuning in to itself <clears throat> and then from that place um, a bit of distress has already been released uh, not that everyone is distressed but I find these kind of mental stories that we tell ourselves are often rooted in in an anxious state of needing to reinforce and retell ourselves our stories mm. um, if we stop spinning that loop um, things will change. So as an example um, of myself, I have often been tripped up by this little story that no one likes me. Mm. Right. And, and if that story is spinning out and I'm believing it, um, it, it affects how I relate to other people because I've already assumed they won't like me. Mm -hmm. You know, therefore, um, if I think they won't like me, I'm already relating to them differently than if I were wholeheartedly just being myself. Um, so this kind of embody work helps to soften those spinning thoughts. And then uh, either you tune in and that spinning thought becomes more obvious and therefore ridiculous. Uh, oh, no one likes me. Wah, wah, wah. Um, well, that's really silly. Or... Um, 
the softening and tuning in makes space for other stories that have been bubbling away, either creatively, um, but been blocked, to, to come up, or other personal stories that are possibly more positive. I think that's really amazing because I think we all, whenever anyone starts to get into a creative process or of working on creativity, and I see this a lot with people I work with who want to write, and and that there may have been some person back, you know, early on in life who said some casual comment like, oh, it would be really hard to be a writer or, oh, you know, that you're not going to make any money doing that or that's not a real career or some small comment that then gets like lodged and filed and identified in, oh, I'm not allowed to do this. So then, of course, every time you'd want to do it, if you feel inspired to do it, then that story comes up and starts, you know, wreaking havoc and then you can't even begin. Yeah, yeah. A psychologist I know called it the itty-bitty shitty committee. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That sounds, yeah. I, I've met many of those committees in my own head and in other people's. Yeah, yeah. And I find with... um with really creative people, most of us tend to be exceptionally sensitive. And therefore, those small little comments, whether they were intended that way or not, they land quite deeply because of that sensitivity. Oh, it's yeah. true. It's so true and so heartbreaking. Um, and I think mm. it's um, in some ways really revolutionary to people to think about going in through the body to get past this because we think, oh, writing is so mental, you know, the creative, certain kinds of creative process. I mean, I think if you're doing something like sculpture or something else that's a bit more physical, it's easier. But for anyone who's working with language, it just feels like it has to go through your brain. And I think you're absolutely right that it doesn't. And in fact, it might be more helpful if it, if you skip the brain at first and then sort of come back to it later. Yeah, yeah. And and to add another little way of thinking of language um, that isn't entirely brain-based is how do we talk with our tongues and our lips and our throat? It's so, it's so physical. And um, liter literate cultures that communicated through a thought process that created the written word before the spoken word are, are still quite new. So uh, as humans, our ways of communicating and storytelling originally were rooted in oral tradition, which um, includes the mental and the physical. Right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's very recent that we would even think of language as a written thing that's divorced from speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you see happen once people do, once they get into their body a little bit more? What starts to happen that you see with them? Uh, what I see is they become more receptive, more open, uh, which sounds a little vague, but uh, another way of describing it would be that as people, especially by the time we're adults, we are ourselves, we're always ourselves from the second we're born, but we have these incredible layers built up around us. Um, so one way of describing it is to call it character armor, uh, ways of behaving in 
around other people, um, around ourselves, to protect ourselves, to present images. Also physically, and this draws from my background in structural integration, um, we get this literal armoring in terms of our posture and our physical quirks, our ways of dealing with stress, of holding ourselves, um, um, having certain areas be constantly tight. And when, it, when it's chronic, it becomes invisible, besides the general sense of discomfort. Um, so, so all of these layers, these little kinds of armoring, they build up quite a bit. And the more armoring that we have, the harder it is to just be as ourselves and um, with the creative spark, the harder it is to get that out. It, it, uh, it takes a lot of effort when there, there's a lot of armoring and layering over our internal true self to, to get our creative efforts out in the world. So when, uh, when I use embodiment prompts, when I invite people to start tuning into their body, our body is perfectly fine the way it is. It has no judgments about itself. It just is here for us to have a home in the world and to, to serve us and be partners with our, ourselves, right? So our body has no judgment. It's just our brain that creates judgments about our bodies. So the more that we're able to start tuning into our physical selves, as a source of presence, as, as being part of ourself, and, and start disconnecting from the critical, judgmental ways of experiencing our senses and our body, the more um, receptive we become to, to the creative that is trying to come through us. Um, and, I mean, this is, this is a great side effect in the healing process, the, the less we need the armoring. Mm. So it's, it's, uh, it's not easy, when, especially when, as, as a culture, as a people, we're very accustomed to not being in our bodies. It's not always easy to start living there. But as we practice and learn how to tune in, um, those layers start to kind of slough off we start becoming more open and comfortable, therefore able to receive more. Um, and when we can tune into our senses, our ability to express our creativity more fully is huge. You know, because how, how do we really describe and write out our stories? It's, it's by being able to communicate about the world we're telling people about and we experience our worlds as humans through our senses yeah absolutely I mean I, I'm getting this really strong visual as you're talking of just how much it impacts I mean having done structural integration anyone who's listening should do structural integration it's amazing um, that's my little side plug but <laughs> but I think it's not just about yeah, it's not just about being uncomfortable or being stiff or whatever, but how much that starts to define what you think is possible and what mm -hmm. you can feel. And 
I just think about, you know, being really young and, you know, they have all these stories. You look at, I have a lot of friends having kids now and then my niece and nephew and looking at them and how flexible they are and how they don't care and they're running around and it's fine. And then later you start to get, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Or maybe I don't want to move that way. Or maybe I, it's like the options get smaller and smaller. And we think it's all like, I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Um, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And from the nineties, uh, the adventures of Baron von Munchausen. It vaguely rings a bell. <laughs> it's a weird reference, but there's this one portion where um, the king and queen of the moon, the king was played by um, Robin Williams, and they have these heads that are on discs, and they can unscrew their heads so that oh. they float off into the air, and the heads just want to detach. They do not want to be... They think the bodies are gross, and they don't want to deal with oh. it, and they just want to have big ideas and float around, and the bodies, like, as soon as they... <laughs> get the head back on the body. The body wants to start making out with the queen and they're just like, Oh, I don't want to be here. I don't want to eat and do all that yuck. But it's like, I feel like that's so mimics our culture is like, we think somehow that our head is divorced from the experience of the body. Or like, if I could just write up in this tower and, and do my thing, like the body is just, I can just ignore that. It has nothing to do with it, but that's just not true. No, but you, but yeah, that's a perfect description of our cultural attitudes towards our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put, I'll put a link. If I can find a video of that little scene, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Cause it's really funny. And I think we all believe that that's possible. And mm. we keep thinking, Oh, if I could just, you know, shut out the noise around me, or if I could just get rid of this physical world so I can concentrate versus right. going towards the physical world is probably what's going to help more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that, that entices me as well is the thought that there is kind of a personal myth process that we go through. And what do you see, like what happens next? So they've, I'm almost interested in following this whole process. Like it's a, it's a template for a myth, but so they've gotten into the body and then they're feeling looser and there's more space for the creativity to come through. What, what happens next? Well, uh, let's say we're working with a more troublesome personal myth, one that they're feeling is really limiting them. What I would get them to do is look at their own little story um, and kind of pull out the, the literary, the story elements, right? Like what is the major challenge in this story? Um, what was the, the beginning, the build up, the challenge? Is there an ending to it? Usually there is no ending because we're looping back through the, in, back into the, the challenge, right? Um, so if I go back to no one likes me, uh, well then I can, I can use my memory to build up a, a fantastic case to prove that point, right? Um, of uh, <coughs> excuse me, having had a hard time in high school with uh, not not really having friends and feeling like I was I was the friendless one. And there's always in groups, there's always someone who's in each role, right? Um, and that happens to have been where I fell. And being young, I didn't understand group dynamics. I just thought, there's something wrong with me. No, no one likes me because there's mm -hmm. something wrong with me because no one would be friends with me when I was 13 and 14. And 
continue going through there and then almost creating more experiences that reinforce that belief. So then I went to Japan as an exchange student and I was really lonely. I was most definitely the odd one out and had some friends at first when I was this exciting, strange, exotic person, but then um, didn't have friends when they discovered how much work it is to be friends with someone who can't speak their language or understand any social cues, etc., etc. So experiences like that I was able to use to reinforce my story. But what if instead, um, and this is what I would get someone say with that same story to do, um, pull out those elements and then start looking at fairy tales and mythology. You know, first of all, what are you, what stories are you really attracted to? Because what we, what we're drawn to already has something to teach us. Um, but also what fairy tales and mythology have a similar story to your story, but they're framed differently. You know, mm. so so I can take that same um, sad and lonely story that I just told you, but um, spin it around to be this incredible learning process instead. That the what I learned was how to really be resourceful. I had a ton of time to read because <laughs> I didn't have a social group. Um, I became an outsider, which uh, gave me the ability to people watch and observe, um, and which is such a brilliant skill and is actually what serves me really well today to, to be able to uh, look at people's posture, how people move, um, how people talk about themselves, how people uh, interact. To, to witness that and be able to see a little deeper. If I hadn't had the experience of being such an outsider, I wouldn't have those skills, right? So that completely reframes it into this um, amazing challenge that I had to go through in order to be where I am today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, oh, there's so many things I was thinking as you were, if you were talking that are exciting. And I think that there is something really brilliant because when we are an outsider and I definitely had, I've had periods of that experience as well, big time. And like starting a new school at five, halfway through the year with bifocals and an eye patch was oh. not the best way to make <laughs> new friends. No. So I'm with you on the, the, like the ugly duckling was definitely my story. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, depending on how we embody those stories, then we think we're the only one in the whole world having this experience. But later, mm -hmm. it's so much easier to relate to people who've also had that experience. Because yeah. in the moment, you think, well, if somebody else was having this experience, I'd be friends with them. But where are they? Um, <laughs> so we always, it's like little islands all over the world. But the thing that I love that you said is that looking at other stories that we relate to because I really think I completely agree. I'm really juiced up by this concept of reading as medicinal right now. And mm -hmm. I think that if people keep reading the same story over and over again, and they want to read the same kind of book, I'm like, there's a message in there. You're trying to yeah. tell yourself something. 
Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of Clarissa Pinkola Estes um, and the way she approaches fairy tales and looking at them. And I just think it's, it's amazing. Like, what kinds of fairy tales do you see or what, what are your favorites to go to that you see people playing out? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I'm also a huge fan of women who run with the wolves. Yeah. That, the way that she deconstructs fairy tales is absolutely incredible. Um, I, so I, my daughter's 13 right now. And in terms of witnessing stories that people go to, it, it is interesting to to notice the books that she consistently picks up to read, mm. right? Like, like you noted, there's, there are themes in what we seek out. I guess I'm thinking, I'm thinking more in a broader sense that all we have to do is look at celebrity culture to mm. know what culture is obsessed with. Absolutely. So the stories that get played out in our culture, um, are reflected in what the tabloids constantly repeat over and over. And those stories on a smaller scale get played out a lot in our individual selves as well. Working with people, I'm feeling a little stuck with that question, actually. <laughs> That's okay. What I, I, I think, I can't pull out a specific story right now, but I can pull out a theme that I've noticed and mostly it's women that come to me, and uh, mostly it's uh, it's it's a, an attempt to get out of a suit jacket that's about three sizes too small in terms of feeling restricted by the stories that uh, we tell ourselves through our culture about what women can be. Mm. Yeah. So lots and lots of pushing pushing to be more than what we're uh, allowed in quotation marks to be according to our culture as women, as mothers. So, and I'm seeing that in my daughter's choice of books. It's the fairy tale of the, you know, there's a bit of adventuring, but it's the, the myth of the, of the big rescue. That's a big one. It's so seductive too. I mean, bad bad pun but I mean I think the the big rescue of just oh it's someone else is going to take care of it yeah someone's going to step in you know I'm, I'm on this adventure but there's there's this magical savior that's going to step in yeah and somebody else has to do it. and the problem with that one is twofold I think one is that it's like oh I don't have to do it but it's also that means I'm not capable of doing it and I yeah, think that's yeah. That's where it feels like there's this horrible stuckness that happens yeah. for women. And it's and I see it in little thoughts I have as an adult oh, too. Me too. Totally. Like the <laughs> like the, oh, what if we win the lottery? Like that's yeah. a, that's a total like whenever the Powerball gets over a certain level, my fiance and I are like, ooh, maybe we should buy a ticket. But I'm just like, oh, that's totally a Prince Charming thing I'm buying into right there. Prince Charming is the lottery. Yeah. Oh, that is brilliant. Uh, I've been, I've, yeah, so brilliant. The lottery is Prince Charming. I never made that connection before. 
But it is, I mean, somebody else, I forget where I heard it. I can't take credit for it, but I also can't give credit to the person who said it. But I was like, that's so true. But just, we have these little moments and it's, it's as much about being afraid of doing it as it is thinking we're not able to do it. Yeah. And I mean, that's echoed in, in the healthcare system, the big fix, the pill, right? The, those kinds of magical solutions that we are so attached to. Yeah, and so. I think it's how we identify, we, we have a tendency to separate people into little groups and some groups can do certain things and others can't. Like I think about, oh, your sister is the writer or your brother is the artist or you're, you know, and so therefore, oh, this person gets all of those skills and I don't get to use them at all. It's just amazing how people get shut into these little boxes and and just get totally divorced from a certain body of skills just because they've been told that they, they don't have them, even though yeah. we all have yeah. these skills. The, the idea that there's a magical gift of talent, right? Yeah. That's, that's another one. Oh, wow. You're giving me ideas here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love, I love thinking about these things because I do think that it's like whenever we get to a point where we think something is difficult, like, oh, I'm stuck. And it mm-hmm. seems like the, the, the go-to answer that can come that I see with myself and with other people and people I work with is not, hmm, maybe I've got a story here that's limiting me. It's, oh, I'm, I'm, that's just not something I can do. Yeah, not questioning the story keeps us stuck for sure. <laughs> I, like, I like helping people question their stories. I think it's a really good thing to do because it's so rare that we're encouraged to do that. And in fact, people are really eager to heap more stories on top of the ones you already have much more frequently than, um, than saying, well, maybe you've got a, maybe you got a bad story there. I don't know. It's like, oh, you're the kind of person who, or people are so eager to say, I'm the kind of person who, and I'm always like, Ooh, what are you going to say when people say yeah. that? Yeah, these self-labels, labels of other people, these, um, it's like we want everything packaged up so neatly that we don't have to pay attention and really inquire and observe, you know? I mean, that's something that I love about reading as sort of a medicinal process is the thought of almost, I like to read things about people who have such little in common with my experience because I want to see how they handle their lives because it it sort of reminds me of traveling. Like it's something I love about travel is like, okay, we spend all our time in a certain part of a certain country and that's the way things are done. And that's the way the grocery store looks. And this is how the street signs look. And then something as simple. I love going to other countries and going to the grocery store and, and something as mundane as that is like, Oh, it never occurred to me. You could do it that way. Especially with travel and different cultures, little disruptions in um, all the assumptions that we float along on, right? That in our everyday lives, it makes life easier. You go to the grocery store, you know which aisles the food is down, you can get in and out really quickly, but then you're also not paying attention at all. And then somewhere else you show up to do the same task, but suddenly all the all the unspoken rules are broken and you have to tune in and everything becomes so magical, so surprising, so uncomfortable in a really great way. Yeah, it's, I remember actually about two years ago, I was in Germany with a friend and um, 
and we went and visited another friend and he organized this tour for us and we went it was in Hamburg and it's a port city so he's like we're going to do this tour of the port and it was it was this it was fascinating but it was like you know very big deal thing industry and he was very proud he he's a very good host and so he had organized all these things and then he said oh we'll just stop at the shops and and get some stuff to have at the house and we lost our minds. Like he said, geez, I should have just taken you to the grocery store. I mean, they had, <laughs> they had like little, um, endives, you know, and they had uh -huh. them in a little box and it had a picture on the top and you could open it and they were sort of in fabric to protect them. And it was the oh, most yeah. beautiful thing. We couldn't believe it. We took a video. We were running around like we were three years old <laughs> and he was just like, oh my God, we should have just put you in the grocery store for the whole time you were here. But it's, it's those things that are like, it never occurred to me that it could happen that way. And now that it does occur, right, you suddenly there's ideas and possibilities that arise out of that. Yeah, and it's like, what else could I do? Mm -hmm. This is why yeah. I love little things like um, National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo, because it's, it's sort of a ludicrous challenge. It's like you're going to write... 1700 words a day for 30 days which it sounds astronomical yeah. and ridiculous to someone who's not a regular writer but the first time I did it I wrote possibly the worst book that's ever been written on purpose I mean I did the point was not to write something that I was going to share with anybody but yeah. it was so intoxicating to break that story of I, I don't know how to do this or I, I can't well, write a novel and it's not possible and on and on yeah yeah and that's not my that's not who I am but it's really really almost kind of addictive to break those stories once you start doing it do you see that happening with people yeah uh there's yeah the, just the sense of possibility is so exciting and the one thought leads to so many others right even just asking the question is this really true you know and and I got oh yeah I got that um, simple process from the work of Byron Katie. She's just, so good. She's so amazing. But all it really is, is it, can you actually know that this is actually true? And then if it's not true, suddenly, like, it's like a, a video of a flower blossoming on high speed. Petals and leaves and options and ideas explode out of this one belief that was so dry and limited just by asking the question do you actually know that it's true you know yeah how can you prove that you can't do that yeah and and, and then if you can't actually prove it well what are you going to do about it are you going to try yeah <laughs> so I, and I see so what I see is this excitement for people between Changing the story, questioning the story, and, and then being able to change the story is so exciting. It's also really, really scary. And so there's a bit of a back and forth and approach and a retreat. Oh, no, 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 that's not possible. Because, because even if we don't like the stories we're telling for ourselves, they're very familiar and safe. Right? So there's often, there's often a bit of a back and a forth, a, a two steps forward, a little retreat, almost like watching a baby that's just learned how to walk and then look back at its mom so it'll go forward and then oh uh oh I made it too far run back to mom and then step out a little further so we kind of we have that own little process in ourselves as well 
Yeah, that's what I was picturing, actually, as you were talking about the story, because my niece recently started walking about maybe a month and a half ago. And it was oh. so interesting. I Actually, it was very cute. My, um, my sister-in-law was able to catch it on video when she first did. And so it's sort of this, huh? And then she starts laughing hysterically. But then there's we watch her over time. It wasn't like, you know, as soon as you're able to take some steps, you're not suddenly like, you know, running races or anything. It's this whole trial process. And then noticing that she would suddenly walk and then realize what she'd just done. It was like, as soon as the brain got out of the way, it was like watching that story in action of like, I'm a crawler. And then like, oh, it's just easier to go drop this thing and watching the body do it. And then saying, wait, what, what did I just do? And I think seeing that when people change their story, it's the same thing. And that's, you know, that's just part of the process. There's no reason to get upset about it. It being in a little bit of a back and forth is just how it goes. As people get started, like exploring creativity and all of those things, it's like, I can see where it starts to look like, oh my God, how far is this going to open up? You know, how far are we going to go? And that is scary. And what else does this mean? What else? Because I think the other thing that I can see, and I wonder if you see this, is if there's grief for not figuring it out sooner. Um, yeah, grief is a really big one, actually. Grief and embarrassment and shame. And certainly I know that from personal experience. I feel like, oh, my God, I did not have to feel so lonely and alone and limited for so long, um, believing that no one liked me. I like, really, Janelle, really, is, it was the, the thinking in my head. Um, but, there's yeah, there's so much grief in that, and you can't change the fact that these places that we inhabit are where we, where we stay stuck until, um, <clears throat> usually until the pain of being stuck becomes greater than the pain of taking the risk to make change. So pain is... A, a fantastic motivator, emotional and mental pain, as well as physical pain. Um, with the structural work I do, it's usually when people are in pain that they find me. Uh, they don't usually come to me when they're feeling great, although that's the best time, of course. <laughs> but that's 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 how it usually goes. So lots of discomfort and pain in ourselves, and then lots and lots of sadness as the changes start happening is so normal. Yeah. But then I guess, you know, that's just almost a cleansing process to just continue to make room for what's next. It really, really is. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not just sadness, you know, it's sadness and excitement. It's both combined. So it's, it's not a totally uncomfortable process. Yeah, if it was, it would be much harder to go through it. Yeah. No, I think that's amazing. Because, yeah, I mean, at the same time as there's this sort of sadness for the part of you that had to feel this way for such a long time, there's also excitement for the part of you that doesn't have to feel that way anymore. Exactly, yeah. And what's that part going to do? Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, then fear can come in, especially if you're a bit of a cautious person. (laughs) Oh, no, what am I going to do? Suddenly, suddenly who I am is not defined by these old descriptions. And and there's a there is that questioning of, um, whoa, 
I don't know who I am anymore, this real groundlessness. And that's actually where stories are so useful. These archetype, archetypal mythologies and ancient fairy tales. And um, because there's actually a structure to see, oh, this place where I'm feeling sad for my old self, excited for my new self, but not really sure who I am or what I'm going to do, this is not a new experience. This is actually documented in every story of transformation that any culture ever has. They can actually become really great guides. Yeah, that's, yeah, because otherwise you're just sort of stripped away completely. I mean, I remember having an experience like that. I did a, um, this was slightly ill-advised, but ended up being a really good experience in my 20s when I stopped seeing clients as a psychotherapist. Um, and I decided I wanted to take a different direction. I said, you know what? I'm going to go do a five-day silent meditation retreat. Um, oh. Thinking it was going to be really peaceful, which it absolutely was not. Um, <laughs> so I went up to Spirit Rock north of San Francisco where I was living at the time. And it was just like, sit for 45 minutes, walk for 45 minutes and talk to no one for five days. And it was the loudest experience I've ever had in my life. It was like my head going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, about, you know, hundreds of things, which I will not bore anyone else with. But, but there was a point after about four days where I, I sort of took a breath and thought, oh, okay, that's just what I've been telling myself about what is. Yeah. And there was, there were a few days, it was less than a week, but where I felt really free of it. But then you could feel it come back in because it is so grounding to have a story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because otherwise you're just like walking off a cliff. It's like the fool in the tarot. It's just like, yay, you know, you're just going to dive off the edge because who knows where the ground is next. Yeah. So I guess it's about then finding where you want to go and then picking your story, right? Yeah, you have, you have the option to make a choice, right? Which is so powerful and also scary. And this is where, again, it's helpful to tune back into the body's guidance because if our mind gets involved in, oh my God, what story do I pick? Oh no. It, it'll just be a mess, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, how do you, how do you use the body at that point to connect to the story? Like what's the best way to do it or a way, I guess. Have you ever had the experience of getting goosebumps when someone tells you something? Yes. Yeah. So our, I mean, it's a combination of intuition and body sensation, but the, the body actually has very physical reaction to certain really true things. Mm -hmm. um, and so goosebumps is a really great guide. Goosebumps and chills uh, and tingles, all sorts of physical sensations um, come up when we encounter a, a real truth. Of, um, whether it's someone else telling a story about an experience that happened to them. I definitely get that experience when what they're telling me is just beyond a doubt amazing and important to them. Um, but also, our own physical responses tell us which path is right and which is not. You know, is there energy? <clears throat> that bubbles up inside of us when we hear a certain idea or story 
Or do we start to feel tired and the voice changes and kind of deflate? Well, that's a fantastic sign that you should not go down that path. <laughs> so when we get more skilled at tuning in, suddenly it becomes really clear that we've got all this internal guidance that has always been there that is really trying to keep us going you know, in a positive, um, in the right path, whatever that is for us, our body will tell us. And, and that kind of goes back again to what you were commenting on about people being attracted to stories, certain kinds of stories. <clears throat> you know, if they're watching, always watching the same theme on TV or um, picking up the same kinds of literature, whatnot, then there's something in that for them and if you tune in, it starts to become more clear. So how can you tell? Because I can see it going both ways. Like if somebody's already picking, always picking up the same kind of book or always watching the same kind of show or movie, mm -hmm. how do you determine what's reinforcing an old story and what's opening up a new one? Uh, well, if they're feeling stuck in the story, you know, like it could be that they... Maybe they keep picking horrible stories and they're rather disturbed by that. Sometimes we have enough self-awareness that we know that what we're attracted to, there's <clears throat> some kind of ugliness in it that, that we're simultaneously attracted to and repulsed by. Mm. So that's a, that's a great sign right there. Um, if they're feeling stuck in that loop, like it's always the same story over and over and I don't really like it, but I keep going back to it, um, then that's a sign. And again, physical responses. If, if uh, someone has read the book or watched the movie and they feel energized and inspired, it's a good path. If they're feeling gross, <clears throat> it's, I mean, those are guideposts in a different direction. Those are suggestions. There's something in the ugly muckiness to be considered and explored rather than resisted. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've been, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense because I'm thinking a lot about, um, I've been playing a lot with tarot lately as sort of a mythical process. And I think people are afraid of certain cards. They think, oh, you know, I don't want that one, but I don't yeah. really see any of them as quote unquote bad cards. They're, they're just, they're different ways to approach a situation. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the death card. Yes. That was the one I was looking at recently. That one in the yeah. tower. <clears throat> tower too. Yeah. They're both, um, huge symbols of change and transformation and, Every time I've gone through those really tough times, I've always been so grateful at the other end of it. And so from that perspective, those are fantastic cards. But it's not always easy to change so drastically, you know? But but there is a positive to it. And so and so if you know, if someone is circling around an ugly story all the time, <clears throat> that's where the idea of shadow work comes in where, you know, what, 
what about this story or this character that gets you so angry and repulsed has to do with you? Mm. You know, like what are you denying about yourself? And and usually once people start asking that question, once they figure they don't they don't need the story anymore. It becomes uninteresting. And and the the reaction to the character and the story disappear, the repulsion is is not there anymore. You know. So I mean an example could be someone who's super attracted to <clears throat> watching movies about seductresses. Mm. These women that just don't care and seduce everyone and get their way and and the person watching it thinks that kind of character is disgusting and awful and horrible and unethical and mean and inconsiderate and all these judgments, well, then the best question to ask is, do I allow myself any seduction in my own life at all? Do I allow myself pleasure in, in that erotic area? Do, you know, like, what is she living that I don't allow at all? And then can I invite the good parts of that in the, and then play with how the story resonates? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Cause, and I think the other thing too, is just starting to look at, I, I think about that old trope, like write what you know. And then mm -hmm. I think people feel very trapped in that. Like, Oh, I can. I only have this one kind of experience, but it's like we have a relationship to all kinds of things, and we could think about, okay, well, we know someone like that, or we know you know somebody who is a seductress and is going around. Like, how can I approach that and and to feel some freedom in exploring stories that maybe are not your direct lived experience? Like, everything doesn't have to be a, a fictionalized memoir. Um, yeah, but I'd also say that writing what you know. Um, becomes a lot less boring when you bring your senses into it and your observational skills into it, you know, because writing what we know, I mean, the story that we're stuck in might be, I have, I'm a boring person. <laughs> well, is that actually true? Right. Well, the one I hear too all the time is, oh, I have nothing to say. No one would ever want to hear about what I have to say. Well, that's a, that's a definitely a personal myth. Yes. Oh, nobody cares about my story. And yeah, it can be as simple as, as really getting into the felt experience of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there can be absolutely brilliant writing about someone puttering around in the garden. Yeah. It's just all about perspective and how the, that experience is shared. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. And it's just, the issue is, that, yeah, I would say almost all the time that I hear someone say that, like, oh, who would want to hear? It's some story that I've just told them I'm dying to read about. <laughs> oh, interesting. And they say, oh, nobody would want to hear about that. I'm like, but I'm telling you that I want to read about it and I can't be the only one. But it's like, it is, as you said earlier, that nobody wants to hear about this could be actually code for I'm too scared to dive into it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think the process is to get curious about what the story is really saying. Mm -hmm. Getting curious, that's the key to it all, I think. Yeah, absolutely.
Ooh, well, I love, I love this discussion and I'm so glad we've been able to have it. And I think, I hope that anyone listening is able to get a little bit more curious about their own experience and to think about what story you're telling yourself about what's possible for you. And then I want to encourage you, um, we're going to have links in the show notes so you can get in touch with Janelle and learn more about what Janelle is up to. Um, you have some fun stuff coming up as well. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about, tell us about what's coming up for you. So I teach an eight week course, which I also call a circle because it's not just about lessons. It's about connecting and sharing stories and re-stories um, called personal myth-making, rewriting your stories. So that starts uh, September 26th and runs for eight weeks online. Um, and we go over really fun themes like um, ancestors, roots, and family mythology, food and culture and the senses, place and space, how where you grew up and, and landscape affects you, um, inspires you, um, body stories, of course, all the shadows of anger and envy and judgment and heroes and villains, and then the end result, along with all of this playtime, is that you'll have built up a beautiful story about yourself that will surprise you. That sounds delicious. So... We'll have links to everything in the show notes so you can check out Janelle's course and more of Janelle's work. And she has beautiful letters that she writes um, that you can get to stay connected to this idea. But I think that we're really onto something to help people to expand what's possible for them and really get into the creativity and the source of, of where all this writing could come from. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It was really a pleasure speaking to you. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Muse Monthly for sponsoring the show. I found them because I was a subscriber, so I definitely encourage you all to check them out. They focus on contemporary adult fiction with a, an emphasis on literary fiction from debut writers, so it's a wonderful way to find a new book um, because I know everybody loves to read. So check them out, musemonthly.com, and remember the code is SECRET00, all one word, all caps, to get 10% off your subscription. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.